So actually, our previous sermon series was called A Faithful Presence, and that's about, you know, who we are as believers, among others in the world. And this series is kind of a continuation of that, in that we're talking about how to be a faithful presence in the city, and why the city is uniquely important to us as believers. Um, So why is that? As Chris pointed out, there are more people in the cities than elsewhere, more of God's image, as he said. Um, That's always kind of been true, but it's especially true now. The world has become much more urbanized in the last century or so. So there's like way more people living in cities than ever before. Um, And this is a calling for many people, you know, believers to share the love of God with those in the cities. And I believe that, you know, God is most often met through the lives of believers. So if we're around other people, it's more chance for people to meet God through us if we are representing him well and loving those around us. Now the city, of course, any city is also a unique challenge because any city is full of all kinds of lifestyles and beliefs and uh, that can be daunting and disorienting. I'm from a very small town in Ohio. It, was, it had what I would call a monoculture. Pretty much everyone there was Christian, pretty much everyone there was the same culturally. So coming to a big city for the first time when I went to college and then coming to LA, it's like scary. It's different. There are different things in the world and I have to figure out what that means to me. Um, and I've been here 20 years now, so I've started figuring that out. Uh, but yeah, disorienting is something a city can be. But a city can also sharpen our faith if we let it and if we're pre- prepared for it. If we're prepared to like live in this strange and weird and wild place, um, it can really... Uh, you know, sharpen our beliefs. So to live among so many others and love them while remaining distinct, different as a believer, a faithful presence, it's a hard balance to find. It's kind of a tension we need to embrace and we need to be rooted strongly in our identity as believers. And it's like rooted enough that our identity remains intact even as we interact with those who might hate us, they might reject us, or they might receive us well. Um, So, yeah, I'm excited to talk about the city. I'm just going to do like a real intro today about why the city is important, talk about our identity as believers in the city, and then Kate's going to continue the series next week, and then Chris after that. It's going to be a fun one. So, would you join me in praying? Um, Lord, I thank you that you have brought us together in this city, and I pray that you'd continue showing us what it means to be here, how we can love and serve those around us in Santa Monica and Los Angeles, Um, lead us, Lord. We need you to do any of this well. Uh, This is about you and your kingdom. So please join us today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So the idea of talking about the followers of Jesus, the church, in the city, uh, we've set it up a lot, but abstractly it kind of seems a little bit random maybe, because like, aren't people important everywhere, even the pagans in the countryside? Yes, But the Bible has a lot of fun stuff to say about cities. And I want to point out that Chris and our leadership team and I have been very influenced by this book by Timothy Keller called Center Church. Um, You know, this was something that we read together before we even planted Pack City to get an idea of what it means to do ministry in the city, why that's, you know, a unique thing unique kind of vision is required. Um, So a lot of our series will be influenced by this, and if you want to read quite a lot, it's very thick, you can ask me to borrow the copy, but Kate gets it next, so I'm just going to 
set this down here so we can, yeah, thank you. Thanks for passing that along. Um, yeah, you can throw away that bookmark in there. I'm done with it. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a grocery store receipt. Um, yeah. So, you know, Tim Keller, very well-known, influential pastor, but he planted a church which became a kind of network of churches in New York City in the late 80s, and they're still thriving, and it's, he has a lot of wisdom to share. So that's why that's been an influence on us. But first, basic question, what is a city? And most simply, a city is a place where a lot of people are living in really close proximity to each other. And that proximity is key to how a city functions, what it provides for its people. Um, so early in the Bible, now I'm going to jump into kind of like a biblical overview, and this won't even really scratch the surface, but just highlight some points. Early in the Bible, God was laying out a plan for Israel, for his people, as they were about to enter the land he promised them. And one of the unique things he gave them was this directive to set aside three cities of refuge. And this is where people could go who accidentally hurt or killed someone to basically receive a fair trial. So it's a little like, okay, that's sad and weird that people die like that. But the idea is that this lines up with a lot of the ancient world in general. Cities were a place where justice could happen. So it was a place of kind of like safety and security. They were usually walled off from the scary world around them. But there was strength in numbers. And... Uh, you know, the outside world was like lawless. It was like vigilante justice was what existed out in the hinterland. But the proximity of so many people in cities necessitated a form of justice or accountability for each other. That's the only way that all these people crammed into these walls could possibly function. So systems of governance were necessary to keep the peace. And that allowed people to thrive instead of worrying about unknown threats or vigilante justice. So we're going to take a quick detour in our very quick biblical overview of cities. Um, that was when they were starting to enter this land that God promised them. Then there was the kingdom, then it was split, and then it fell apart. So ancient Israelites didn't do so well, and then there was this power, the empire of Babylon, that conquered them. And a lot of the Jewish people then went to Babylon as exiles. And something really interesting happened here, and we read about it in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, where he says this, Jeremiah 29, 7, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the Israelites had been taken from their land, they're captive in Babylon, and they are called to serve the city. Despite that city being anti-God, and really anti-them as a people. They were captured, but God didn't call them to rebel or attack. Instead, God, God's people are supposed to represent him well in loving ways among their enemies. By serving their enemies, everyone benefits, and God himself is glorified. Okay, jumping forward again, Babylon's no more. Now there's a new empire in town. It's called Rome. We're in the New Testament the time of Jesus and the first followers of him after himself. Jesus didn't take over like a conquering king. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He kind of obeyed the law of the land, give to God what is God's. His victory in dying and being raised to life again was over a bigger enemy than the Roman Empire. It was over sin and death. And the earliest believers started spreading this really good news. And what we see in the book of Acts 
is that where did they spread it? Cities. So Paul, other apostles, just went around from city to city. Why is that? Well, cities provided an ideal place to share information. With systems of governance and protection, safety meant not just thriving physically, it allowed for culture to develop. So many people in close proximity, what inevitably happens, they're sharing ideas, thoughts are developed and expanded upon, innovation happens at a greater rate. And each city had its own culture. It's a fun and like biblically nerdy thing to do if you study the book of Acts and you see how the Apostle Paul presented the gospel message a little bit differently in each city he went to because he catered the message to what was important to those people. He got to know the city a little bit, saw what made it tick, He faced a ton of opposition and persecution while he was doing so, but his faithfulness to go and share this word was fruitful. The churches sprung up in cities all around the ancient Roman world, all around basically like the the Mediterranean. And, uh, you know, eventually, a couple hundred, 300 years later, this influence grew so much that the emperor of Rome himself became a believer. Uh, And that obviously changed things for the Roman Empire at the time, but as the initial apostles were starting, you know, they just went from city to city, from Jerusalem to Samaria, Judea, and beyond, spreading the good news of what Jesus did. So cities are engines of culture. They're leading, like, whole regions and sometimes the globe with their influence, with their advancement of beliefs, thought, technology, and art. And a a little sidebar here, I'm going to take a moment to talk about a trip I recently made. I had the privilege to visit Florence, Italy, which is actually like a really wonderful example of how one city can influence so much. So I believe there's a photo up here. This is a sunset view, and you'll see the cathedral dome over there. I was in Florence in May, and Florence is a fascinating story. So like Rome fell, Europe fell into the Dark Ages, all the thriving cities and influence and culture was happening in like the Silk Roads and the you know, further east, Middle East and Far East. But then something incredible emerged in Florence, And how did that happen? Well, the cities in kingdoms of Italy, what we now call Italy, because they had a lot of coast, they traded a lot with other places that were thriving. So they had a lot of like ideas churning, money, economy coming from other places. They were gaining wealth and technology. But also unique in Italy was that there was a lot of civic pride. The cities like were rivals with each other. And so they would fight, but in a relatively friendly way. I mean, sometimes they conquered each other, but they really like had this kind of rivalry thing going on on the boot, like on the Italian kind of landmass there. And then unlike a lot of medieval Europe, like we think of medieval times, you think of like the castle like out all by itself and it's just like, stay away, we're protected. Nobody can kill us here. That's where like the rich people lived in a lot of Europe. But in Italy, the wealthy and the powerful like to live right in the middle of the cities because they knew that was safest. And the cities in Italy also had a lot of like, not quite democracy, but like city councils ran these cities. And so there was a lot of cooperation. So you have the forces of economy, political power, they were set up physically to maximize interaction and inspiration within the cities. And then you throw in a little vanity, like the very wealthy Medici family you may have heard of, that basically spent so much money to cover their walls and ceilings with art. And then you've got the Renaissance. So there's like all of this like progression with art and technology. So the, the dome of that cathedral, this is fascinating. The, the people in Florence knew what was happening. They knew they were in the middle of this like 
technological progression. So they built the cathedral and left the dome off because they knew that somebody in a few years was going to figure out the engineering required to build that dome, which was the largest of its kind built in a thousand years in Europe. And they waited, and then this guy named Brunelleschi is like, I figured it out. He did the math, he built the dome, it's still standing, I climbed to the top of it, it was scary. But like, they knew what was going on, and they were excited. And then you see a lot of progression in art. So there's a picture, I believe, of me visiting Michelangelo's David, very famous statue. Like, probably like that and the Mona Lisa are like the symbols of the Renaissance, right? So, uh, you know, David, it's still awe-inspiring today. Michelangelo was glorifying God with this artwork. It's David from the Bible who beat Goliath, uh, but obviously it was kind of controversial because it's a male nude. Um, so just revisiting art that the ancient Greeks and Romans did, that kind of thing. But it was seen as a celebration of the human form as God designed it. And a little bit different, I also saw the statue of Mary Magdalene by Donatello. By the way, Florence is like where all the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle dudes were from, Donatello, Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo. Um, like literally all those crazy people, geniuses, progressing their art forms, lived in the same city at roughly the same time. So Donatello's Mary Magdalene, you see this like deeply expressive humanity of just like this woman who needs and has received or maybe it hasn't quite yet received the grace of Jesus that she met. Just beautiful expression as opposed to the older medieval art, which was like kind of very rigid. And if it was, somebody was sad, they would just like draw a tear on their cheek. This is like you feel it in the sculpture. So just like all these cities of ancient Rome drove the culture in their day, Florence did the same. And the Renaissance like spread like wildfire from one city with art, architecture, philosophy, theology, etc. Like it, this changed the European continent and the world and all came from there. So it's like, that's the idea of when we say a city is a cultural engine, that's a great example of that. Okay, back to the Bible a little bit, jumping all the way ahead to the end in Revelation 21. Here's verses 10 and 11. This is uh, the writer of Revelation, John, sharing the vision he got from the angel uh, that carried him into the heaven. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So he goes on in the rest of this chapter and describes what the city looked like and all of its glory and like unique dimensions and that kind of thing. And What's interesting is this is like the picture of the end, like the next age when like God has won it all and conquered everything. And it's not a reversion back to this primordial garden of Eden. It's a city. It's like the human societal form in its best possible shape. And I love that. And that's why we see like cities are so important to God. They're part of his future mission. So that's in the future. But when it comes to the world we live in, cities have... It's kind of a mixed bag in terms of their reputation. Um, that's changed somewhat in the last few years, but in the 20th century in America, cities were not very appreciated. There are a lot of societal forces at play at why that was. Uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, tons of immigrants arrived from all over the world, and they went to cities where they could find their enclaves and people like themselves. The great migration of African Americans from the South to the North filled in the cities in most of the North of the United States. So cities became intensely multicultural. 
But you may know this, we have a history of racism in America, and that led to the phenomenon of white flight. Because people who had means, and those means were governed by racist laws and banking and all this kind of stuff, meant that they could escape this like scary multiculturalism of the city where people were poor and it was crowded. And so cities became known as scary places, which is really because they were underfunded, under-resourced, they were impoverished, which led to more crime. And then you had this global crime spike in the later 20th century. Now, I was born in 1979, so I didn't really remember tons of this, but I remembered this vibe I had as a kid, like, the city is scary. Drive around it to get to the mall in the other suburb. That was just how cities were often seen in America. Uh, unfortunately, church culture often goes the way of culture culture, and many people in the church, maybe the most resourced churches, the loudest voices in the American church, left the city too. So what that meant is that ministry to the city changed. It wasn't about loving and serving the neighbors that were living around. It's like the city is the other, and that's how we're supposed to reach them, which is not necessarily the most loving perspective to have. So even as cities rebounded since, say, you know, the last 30 years, the fear of them has remained because that became very deeply ingrained in our culture. So culture in America has turned and changed and it's become very global and it's, you know, driven by the interaction of humanity ideas. Like, you know, but the city is seen as these godless, coastal, elite places. And we're in the midst of this ongoing culture war. And it's really infuriating because a lot of the, you know, the most vocal people in the church have denounced like what's happening in cities in America. There's no way to kind of summarize that or categorize it, but let's, for the sake of this talk, call it the reactionary church. Now, that perspective is not universal by any means. Lots of people love the city and appreciate it for all, it's, for all that it is. But there are loud voices who say that the city is full of bad people and bad ideas, and it's a bad place. And often that voice, those voices, are often heard more than the gospel, than the good news, than the, that Jesus has something for all these people, that he loves all these people in cities and countryside and everything. Now, by the way, this is nothing new. Um, uh, when I was in Florence, I learned about this guy, I think I have a picture of like his gravestone or something, named Savonarola. He was a reactionary church guy in the late 1400s in Florence, and he hated the fact that People were sculpting nudes and painting nudes and appreciating the human form. And he saw all of this new art and this progression as hedonistic and evil. And if you've ever heard the phrase, the bonfire of the vanities, that was him. He called people into the town square in Florence and told them to burn all the art. And a lot of them did. Does anyone, maybe my age or a little higher, like remember CD burning parties in the 90s? Yeah, like... They're, okay, we got a hand raised in the back. Yeah. History repeats itself. There's a reactionary, scared fear that causes, you know, people to just handle it the wrong way. Uh, so if cities are where the most people are, if they're the engines of culture, ideas are being spread, people finding connection, I believe it's actually really crucial for the church to be sharing good news in cities. A reactionary distancing won't cut it. A loud judgment of the cities 
is not going to cut it. That's not going to share good news. So as followers of Jesus, we are given a mission to share his gospel with the world. However we relate to the ever-changing culture around us, that, you know, it's in many ways hostile to us, but we've got to find the right posture in how we relate to that. Finding that right kind of relationship posture is key. And we have to ask, will that posture be rooted in fear? Or, on the opposite side, will we acquiesce to the dominant culture and cease being distinct as believers? So the book of 1 Peter uh, gives us a glimpse into a better way to be the church in cities. And if we root ourselves strongly in our identity as believers, we can avoid reactionary fear that would drive us away from the gospel toward either controlling religion or towards submission to earthly culture. So just revisiting uh, the first couple verses there, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we see that our identity in God, it's special. We're chosen. We're royal because we're co-inheritors of God's kingdom with Christ. We're all priests and we can draw close to God and serve him and help others to do the same. We're holy. We're a group of people set apart. And we're a delight to God. Like he loves this. He loves us. But it's all with a purpose, the great purpose of sharing God's goodness, of declaring his praises with all around us. But then comes the key in verse 10. Peter reminds the readers that all of these things that make us special actually have nothing to do with us and who we were before or anything we could have done to earn it. We weren't those things, and now we are those things. And this, that's the gospel. It's a free gift from God. And this, more than anything, should be our inspiration to boldly declare it to the world. Because anyone who hears the good news may also join this life with us. God's mercy and grace is new life freely offered to anyone. The price for all the unholiness in us, everything that separates us from God, that was paid by Jesus. And it can be paid by Jesus for others who don't yet know him as well. So Peter continues in 11 and 12, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we see our new identity as God's people makes us like foreigners and exiles, just like the ancient Jews in Babylon. And just like them, we are called to serve the city and its people wherever we are. But we also see something is warring against us. Something is warring against that, that the ability to do that well, and that is our sinful desires. These desires war against our ability to live as God has called each of us to live. They are different for each of us, whatever our sinful desires and our weaknesses are, but there's something universal that we all share about this, which is the natural human desire to not be in a constant state of conflict. Yet Peter shows us that we're kind of going to be as believers. That's what we can expect as foreigners and exiles in the world. So we need to be very cautious about how we try to avoid that constant state of conflict within ourselves. 
One big mistake, which I've kind of referred to already, made by the church, is to react in fear. That stance, you know, that I referred to with the reactionary church. If we see people living in ways around us that tempt us, and if we fear our own weakness to that, it's kind of a natural human reaction to place blame on those people. We might make those people who live differently than us the enemy. They're dragging me into sin. Well, how would we react to that? We could run away. You know, it sure is easier to be a Christian, like in my hometown, in a monoculture where everyone kind of believes the same thing and everyone lives like I do. That's easier. Let's just admit it. But it throws our mission and purpose right out the door if we separate ourselves from anyone who might need to hear the good news. Another reaction out of fear would be fighting and forcing our way onto those people. We can use the bully pulpit to shame others for their way of life, or we can pass laws that make it clear our rules should be for everyone. Now, in the extreme, that's Christian nationalism, and that's a real bad way to, to share the good news of Jesus. Our message just becomes one of rules and regulations if we do that. The gospel of grace and mercy cannot be heard. People who don't yet know Jesus are not the enemy. The war is against our own desires, not people who have no reasonable expectation to live as we're called to live as believers. If we identify the right enemy, though, we can be better equipped for battle without undermining our ability to share the good news. I read an essay by a theologian named Miroslav Volf. He's Croatian-American, just like me. Uh, <laughs> I believe he's at uh, the Yale Theology School, whatever it's called. Uh, but he wrote a beautiful essay about First Peter and this kind of posture that we should have as believers in, you know, in cities and um, an unbelieving world around us. And we need to remember that the non-Christians are not our enemy. Our former way of life is. And it's always tempting to draw us back. We are all weak. We are not perfectly renewed yet. We are in lifelong processes of sanctification. But the force of Peter's statement in this scripture is not saying, don't be as they all are. It's, don't be as you used to be. The way you used to live before you received God's mercy and grace. And that difference is key, as Miroslav Volf says in this essay, only those who refuse to be defined by their enemies can bless them. So if we're constantly seeing an enemy as like something we need to war against, we can't love and serve those people. We're called to bless them. If we're going to serve the city to love and bless our neighbors, we can't view them as our enemies. Our struggle is to follow Jesus faithfully within ourselves. Now, thankfully, our weakness against our own desires is opportunity for God's strength. We can draw on him and his constant outpouring of grace for our weakness. We can even be thankful for living among all the multicultural differences because they can just remind us of the gospel, that all those people, whatever beliefs they have, whatever different lives they're living, they just haven't received Jesus yet. Just like I used to not be in this family, and now I am. I used to not know God's mercy, and now I do. I'm so weak, but nothing about my newfound identity or carrying out this person or mission is at all rooted in my own strength. 
but here I am. And God might use me in my weakness to share himself with others. Peter continues in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. We will face rejection, attack, persecution. But through our integrity, the consistency of living our lives with God, he will be accepted by some. The message is not wasted through our words or our deeds. The accusations will come, but our service and love will be noticed and it will make a difference. So if we identify our real enemy, our own desires and our personal histories and hurts and habits, and we fight toward health in those areas, strength in those areas with the help of other believers around us, then we can stand in the face of rejection and accusation from those we're serving and loving. And we can keep on serving them even though they might bite back. Finding this level of self-differentiation is probably a lifelong journey, but I believe it can lead us to the healthiest posture we can possibly have to an unbelieving culture around us. The same theologian, uh, Wolf, in his essay, which is called Soft Difference, describes it. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's worth reading. He writes, A decision for a soft difference, on the other hand, presupposes a fearlessness, which First Peter repeatedly encourages his readers to assume. People who are secure in themselves, more accurately, who are secure in their God, are able to live the soft difference without fear. They have no need to either subordinate or damn others, but can allow others space to be themselves. For people who live the soft difference, mission fundamentally takes the form of witness and invitation. They seek to win others without pressure or manipulation, sometimes even without a word. I think that's beautiful. This is how we're to reveal God to people. Witness and invitation. Serve the city. Love the people who are not yet part of the family that we became a part of. Of course, we are going to face the opposite temptation. The other side of the coin is our own sinful desires to fit in to the dominant culture. That's another strong pull that we have. You know, we might simply give in and revert to our old ways of life or live like those around us. That also undermines our witness because we're called to be different than those living around us. And Jesus himself, like, it's one of the first things he talked about early in the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about what God's people are supposed to be in the world. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? He goes on, uh, this is Matthew 5, by the way, 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are different as God's people. We are his holy nation. The trick is we're unacceptably different to some people. But we provide goodness where we live and serve. It's noticeable. People notice it. Something changes the state of things around us by the way we live faithfully. We can only do that if we retain our saltiness, if we don't cover our light or extinguish it entirely. So we should neither put a bowl over our light, hide ourselves away, create an unbearable and uninviting distinction between us and other people, 
But nor should we lose our saltiness and give up any distinction. We've got to participate in society and respect others who do in the way that they know how to do. So how do we strike this balance? By pressing into our relationship with the one who offered us grace to begin with. A pastor friend of mine used to say this. I don't know where he got it, and I repeat it somewhat often. Grace is the way in and the way on. It's how we got to know God in the beginning, but it's how we continue getting to know him and serving him in our weakness, in our probably consistent failing, maybe a little bit less as the years go by. It's part of the relationship by design that we rely on God. We rely on him as we live and serve the broken world around us. In fact, often it's our reliance on God that is so offensive to people. It's human to just want to be in charge and choose your destiny and control things. But relying on God is ultimately the posture of the most freedom. It's freedom from fear. It's freedom from having to force anything on anyone else. It's freedom to live out our lives faithfully amidst opposition. You know, as we said in the last series, kind of like faithfulness is just our job to show up, be present, give glory and honor to God and listen well to others and figure out how to communicate with them in a way that's understandable. We just need to show up and be loving people to those around us. So Peter ends the, the letter, we're jumping ahead to chapter five now, with just a reminder of the struggle of this and how God's in it with you. Starting in verse eight, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So we need to rely on God. He gives us exactly what we need whenever we need it to do this thing, to be faithful amongst the big, wild, multicultural city that may be scary, it may be fun, it may be tempting, but we've got to be salt and light. And uh, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And just as we prepare to worship one last time, I want to invite us to everyone stand. And we're going to do a little bit of ministry. I just felt like God gave me this funny word. Um, maybe some people feel a little wobbly about living their life of faith in this city. You know, finding that balance, that tension of not reverting to fear, not giving into culture around you, it can be uneasy. It's like walking a tightrope is never a comfortable thing that you can just like sit and relax. We're always going to be a, a little bit of tension. So if that word speaks to you in any way, if you would love some prayer for feeling wobbly at this time in your life in this city now, please come up to the front. You can make your way up right now. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe Nikki can pray for you. I don't know who the prayer team is today, to be perfectly honest. Jess can pray for you. Thank you. Um, so at any point in the, this last song, please come up. We'd love to pray that God would speak truth and love and grace and strength into your wobbliness or your unease. And you can also come up for any physical ailments, pain, anything you want healed. We would just love to pray. Um, so let's do that, and we're going to worship 
with one last song.